to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Ivy, the younger sister, and my fact of the day is that even though I love cleaning and organizing, I hate, loathe, and despise doing laundry. I, I don't I don't put any real effort into it. Everything goes into one load together. I don't even own white clothes. I don't own anything that wrinkles easily. I don't own anything that has to be dry cleaned. Everything goes into one load together and everything gets put through the dryer on high heat, which I know is super frustrating to people who love laundry, but I just don't have the capacity to care enough about it to take good care of my clothes. You know, this is the first time I found out that you're not supposed to put everything through on high heat. Like I knew that I was supposed to be separating my laundry, like I had heard that, but I'm not a laundry racist, so I don't do that. But I didn't know you weren't supposed to do high heat. But then at the same point, like I go to the laundromat, I'm not putting in extra quarters from some low heat bullshit so they can get more of my quarters. I'm going high heat and getting my money's worth. And I do, I do high heat because I already hate doing laundry and it takes so much for me to motivate myself to pull the clothes out of the dryer, to fold them and put them away. That if they're still damp because they went through on low heat I'm annoyed now because now I know in another hour, I'm going to have to work up the motivation again and it doesn't happen. <laughs> I have let a load of clothes sit in my dryer for a week and a half because I could not get the motivation to get the clothes out of there. If I run it through on high heat the first time the way I wanted to, then I wouldn't have had that problem. But Calvin started that load of laundry in the dryer. So then I had to deal with that bullshit, which mean, meant both of us had to just pull our clothes out of the dryer for the day for like a week and a half. <laughs> the dryer is the new dresser. <laughs> um, I am I am Autumn, the older sister. Um, my fact of the day is I have never seen a studio Ghibli, Ghibli, don't know how to pronounce it either, movie that I have not liked. I've not seen all of them, but thus far the ones I've seen I fucking love. I don't know what it is about that studio and the stuff they put out, but it is so captivating without being emotionally taxing. So even when I feel like I can't connect and I can't do anything, I can still watch Studio Ghibli or Ghibli or the Totoro guy. The Totoro movies, that's what I call them because it's the little picture of Totoro and I love him. Anyways, that's my fact of the day. <laughs> that I also can't pronounce Ghibli Ghibli. That's also part of the fact, apparently. I also don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced either. And I, I love anime, but I never have really super gotten into those movies. I don't know. Do they technically count as anime? Maybe they don't. I don't know. I feel like they get lumped in with, in with anime a lot. They they do. I, I love them. I love Spirited Away and Totoro and The Cat Returns and Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah, they're definitely anime more than cartoons, I would say, because not so much like it's an adult theme, but it's not the cheap gimmicks you typically see with animated movies. It's not the hard laughs and the bathroom humor. It's a more subtle thing. So I, I call it anime. And it's from Asia. 
I want to say Japan, but I can't verify that. So I'm just going to say Asia. (laughs) I think the reason why it doesn't appeal to me as much, like they're fine. I don't have any issues with them. But my interests in anime are very narrow for the most part. I like high school romance anime. Almost all of the ones that I really love are high school romance anime. They're just fluffy and ridiculous and they are all high school romance i don't know why but that's what i get into that and anime (laughs) horror oh my grotesque graphic anime horror i am just one end of the spectrum or the other fluffy (laughs) high school romance or really disturbing horror i don't know what's wrong with my brain i'm fucked up that that is that is very extreme neither of these facts of the day as often happens have anything to do with our topic. You know, you think we would come up with more facts that are related to our topic so that we could segue more easily. But honestly, it's really hard for Ivy and I to come up with facts about ourselves at all. You would think after decades of self-reflection, we would know more things about ourselves. But apparently we don't. Go for it, Ivy. Just ram the segue into the concrete wall. <laughs> all right, I will. <laughs> so... So today, what we're going to be talking about is how when you have experienced a trauma, it can really make you feel like damaged goods and like you are just total human garbage. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, because I don't know about you guys, but I have had that struggle for quite some time where the trauma I have experienced has left me feeling like I am damaged or broken or, you know, how it is. With trauma, making you feel shitty about yourself, making you feel like you're falling behind, all that good stuff. Now, most of this episode, we're going to be focusing on how you can shift your perspective and overcome this very much a misconception because it is a misconception, often a learned one or one that is beaten into you. But before we get to that focus, we do want to touch briefly on why trauma can make you feel worthless. And This, again, goes with Ivy and I being so analytical. A lot of times, if you can understand the reasons underneath it, you can then start to work with those reasons to come up with solutions more personal to you. And it's also good for those that haven't experienced trauma to get an understanding of why people feel this way. Because I think it's very difficult for individuals that haven't gone through this to understand why you feel so crappy about yourself. Because I think most of the world looks at a lot of people that have gone through trauma when they're like, oh, it's not your fault and you're a survivor and they want to give you all these kudos and they don't understand why you think you're a dumpster fire. And so we're going to start there today. And I think one of the big things is when you go through any kind of trauma, you feel worthless. You feel, I feel, you know, I'm just going to term this as me. I feel quintessentially broken. I feel like something that is the very nature of me, my very existence, is somehow damaged or leprous or wrong. I have nothing to offer people. I am completely unworthy of love. And part of this for me, and I'll be honest, comes from the fact that it was childhood trauma. And the people that stereotypically are supposed to love you unconditionally, no matter what, your mother and your father were unable to love me. Because their pain and their issues were bigger than their love for me. And so that left me feeling like I was unworthy of love. Because when the one person that is supposed to be genetically designed and societally primed to be able to love you can't, well, how horrible of a person are you? I think it also just, it it makes you feel like you don't deserve to be happy either. That... For whatever reason, you went through these things, partially because you 
deserved to go through those things and that you don't deserve to be happy. And that especially when it comes from childhood trauma, that because you didn't deserve to be happy when you were even a child, before you really even had the capacity to do anything wrong, if you didn't deserve to be happy as a child, well, you're not going to deserve to be happy as an adult. And so if anything can go wrong, it will go. And I think you spend a lot of time waiting for the other shoe to drop because when you grow up in a traumatic household, something always goes wrong. Something's always going to pop that balloon, piss on that parade. And so you're spending a lot of time waiting for the other shoe to drop. And sometimes you almost don't want to feel worthy because you're waiting for somebody to come beat you down. And I know also for those of you that were the responsible one, you may have to assume that you earn your worth. And that may have been a lesson you learned. Unless you do X, Y, or Z, you can't be loved. And so you feel like you have to earn your worth. And I think all of these issues also lead to the very fact that you just assume people don't like you. I mean, you're a shitty person. Your parents couldn't love you. You have to earn every little bit of love you get. Obviously, people aren't going to like you. What is there to like about you? You were talking about when you're the hyper-responsible one, but I was the scapegoat for the most part in our family. And so I felt that it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't earn love and acceptance. So that just made it even worse for me. And it really has made me assume that people are not going to like me. No matter what, people are not going to like me because regardless of what it is that I do, I will somehow be flawed. I will somehow be a burden. I will somehow have messed it up for myself and everybody else. So I think that can also factor in as well, whether you are the golden child or you're the scapegoat or whatever part that you played, whatever role you had in in your family, if you did experience that childhood trauma, you're just going to assume that people don't like you because you either have not done enough to earn their acceptance or their love or whatever, or there's nothing that you can do. And I think that goes into desire that we have to people please. A lot of people that have been through some sort of significant trauma feel like they need to people please because that's safety. This constant desire to please other people is largely hinging on this need that you have to be safe and this feeling that the only way to be safe and to have maybe some happiness at all is that if you can make other people happy, if you can fulfill their desires, if you can live up to their expectations, maybe, just maybe, you will be safe. And maybe, just maybe, you will have some worth at all. And I think that also double dips you back into the feelings of worthlessness, though, because you are people pleasing as an automatic reaction to stay safe. And so people like, oh, but you're so kind and you're so nice. And you feel manipulative a lot of times in doing that. You're like, I don't really want to be nice to you, but I have to. And that makes you feel even worse about yourself. And I think this also, again, self, me, I, that goes right into that next point. Trauma leaves you with a lot of feelings of self blame. That responsibility is somehow on your shoulders. The responsibility for the trauma, somehow it was your fault. You were being punished. There was a reason that it happened to you. And it feels like your fault. I think too, a lot of people that have had a significant trauma, we kind of end up with this attitude of, well, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have to be stronger. And with that self-blame, sometimes there's that sense that 
if I had just been stronger to begin with, if I had just been tougher to begin with, these things wouldn't have happened to me. I could have stopped it from happening or that it wouldn't affect me now. If I was just a stronger person, I would not be so deeply affected by this now. Trauma also tends to impede your ability to trust yourself as well. So even when you're trying to start on this journey and you're trying to learn to love yourself and you're trying to learn to have a positive view of yourself, it's very difficult because you can't trust yourself. A lot of times with trauma, you've been gaslighted for a long time until that just happens internally. So you can't trust your own reality, your own emotions, your own thoughts. And once you do have that trauma and you get out into life, if you do develop PTSD with this, which a lot of us do, that just gets further etched in because now you're triggered by everyday things and everybody else thinks, oh, you're just overreacting. It's nothing but a dish in the sink. It's nothing but somebody's hair brushing against you. But for you, it's the end of the world. And so they think, oh, you're just crazy. And that's what you start to feel like because you're already primed to be gaslighted. And then if you're really unlucky, you get flashbacks, which means you literally get stuck in the moment and you can't differentiate between now and then. And when you come out of those, you may realize what happened and it becomes very, very difficult to trust not only reality, but yourself at all. And I think it also makes it hard for you to trust that you're not going to hurt other people as well. I know in, in my own life, one of the biggest challenges that I have had in my interactions with other people, my relationships with other people, is that because I was gaslighted for so long and I gaslight myself now, I'm always thinking that if I'm having an, an issue within that dynamic with somebody, it's my fault and I'm being unreasonable and they're fine. I'm just broken. I'm just crazy. I need to deal with it. And so I bottle it up and I keep it inside and then resentment grows towards them. And then I resent myself for resenting them when I'm the one who's fucked up and messed up. And then that makes it even harder for me to trust myself because I can't trust my reality. I can't trust what I'm feeling. I don't trust the other person. And then my resentment stuff starts to boil up. And the other person is like, I, I don't even know what's going on. What, what's, <laughs> what's wrong with you? That's what it feels like it ends up turning into. And that's not even always what they're saying, but that's how my brain interprets it is, oh, that's right. There's something wrong with me. Even if all they're saying is, I want to understand what's going on. And I just start going into that self-blame of I'm broken. I don't know what to tell you. I'm fucked up and horrible. And all I'm ever going to do is hurt you and be a burden to you. So why are you still with me? I think that's a really, really common theme. And I think a lot of people see that as manipulative, but it's an honest truth when you do say something like that. You're not looking for <laughs> approval for others or somebody be like, oh, no, you're just saying sky's blue. I'm a piece of shit all true. That's how it feels to you. Also, you haven't learned other behaviors. And this is a part that I think doesn't get talked about enough in childhood trauma is you lack life experiences. You lack knowledge. And so even if you want to break the pattern, how? Because you don't know any other actions. And that goes also into just basic life skills. A lot of us are isolated when you go through a traumatic childhood. A lot of you are just trying to survive and you can't participate in normative experiences. So you lack basic understanding. You may have had educational difficulties, reading difficulties. You may have psychologically acted out. You may have never been taught how to drive a car or how to change oil or how to do a million other things, even down to just how to have a conversation 
any of these things you may not have been taught. And when you go into the world and all these other adults are just checking out at a self-checkout and you don't know how, you feel really stupid. I think sometimes without even meaning to, other people can just accentuate that feeling that you already have about yourself being inept because these things that are seemingly so simple and should be easy are hard for you or you never learned them. And to a lot of other people, it was just basic shit that they were taught. But to you, it's like a luxury being able to have those basic skills. The sheer number of times people have looked at me with shock when I have said, I don't know how to swim, nobody ever taught me, or I don't know how to ride a bike because nobody ever taught me. Those are, to a lot of other people, basic things. It's like, how did you get to adulthood and not know how to do that? Well, nobody taught me anything. Everything that I have learned, I've had to learn the hard way. And because I have had to focus on learning basic life skills. Since I've had to put so much effort into that, it's been a luxury to even consider future career goals or maybe buying a house someday. Or you know, these things that a lot of other people take for granted as just natural parts of growing up and becoming an adult. Those were not things that I felt I had the capacity for because I was spending so much time just learning basic life skills and then also trying to counteract a lot of the trauma and learning more about what was going on with me and learning how to get healthy things that maybe a lot of other people don't even have to consider i had to because the trauma and the mental health stuff that i've had as a result of it has taken up so much of my life and impaired so many aspects of my life which you know, that can really make you feel like you're falling behind everybody else. And I think honestly, and I don't know if a lot of people will like this fact or not, it doesn't just feel like you're falling behind. You are falling behind. I've often looked at trauma as having two broken legs and life is a, a staircase. And so people are just walking up the stairs and they're looking at you like something's wrong because you're having to drag yourself up hand over hand, dragging your ass up as the broken bones get jarred every single step. And so, yes, people in your peer group are more advanced. They've got their high school diploma, whereas you had to drop out or they were able to get a job and able to stick with it because their mental health issues didn't interfere. And now they are making better money and they have a career. There are a lot of things like that where they did have more advantages if you want to term a loving family that cared about you and taught you life skills as an advantage, which I do because it's not one I had, it, you are falling behind. You are nowhere near where your peer groups are. And I know they say, don't compare, don't compare. Yeah, but that's really hard to do. It's also really hard to do when those are things you would like to have. Uh, maybe you would like to have a college degree. Maybe you would even like to just have a GED. And that's not something you can do. And that yeah, don't compare to others, but try getting a job without a GED, especially a decent paying one. That is becoming near to impossible in this country. So comparisons aside, this falling behind sucks. It really, it really messes up your ability to move forward. And then you end up feeling worse about yourself, especially if you can't make the necessary money because there is so much self-blame in this country around poverty. Obviously, if you're poor, there's something wrong with you. You're not smart enough. You're not working hard enough. And that just goes into your own self-blame. Obviously, it must be true. Obviously, I'm the one fucked up.
It also goes into difficulty fitting in because you are so off from your peer groups and the rest of society, you don't fit in. You can't relate to others. You didn't grow up in their world. It took me the longest time to realize why so many things I said just dead-ended conversations. All of these individuals that talk about going to prom or being a sorority or living the regular college life or having even a carefree adolescence where you got to make mistakes that were not going to permanently impair the rest of your life. It's nothing I had. And a lot of us that go through trauma, that's what we experience. And so when other people come to you and you try to relate over these societal things, you can't. And sometimes that even goes to basic normative society things, sports groups, uh, famous singers, things that we think about connecting with, television shows, small talk conversation that's everybody can connect to this. Everybody's heard of Elvis. Depending on the amount of trauma you went through, depending on how isolated you were, maybe not. And so you do feel like you can't belong. You can't fit in. And even when you try, you end up fucking it up somehow because you don't understand how to fit in. These societal scripts, they don't make sense at all. I I think too, there needs to be some attention brought to people who experienced their trauma later in life, because there are plenty of people who, when they were younger, maybe they did have an easier time. Like they grew up in a relatively healthy, normative family. They felt safe. They felt supported, but then they experienced a significant trauma later in life. Like maybe they were in the military and they were in combat or they were raped as an adult where their trauma came about much later in life. And so I think that can that brings its own challenges because at one point you felt like you could fit. At one point you felt like you were speaking the same language as everybody else, but then you went through this really big trauma and now you don't anymore. You don't feel safe anymore. You don't feel secure anymore. Your priorities have now shifted. The way that you view the world has shifted and the people that you were once close to that you felt understood you and you were intimate with, now you feel really isolated from them. Because I think a lot of us, when we're talking about trauma, we do have you know a history of childhood trauma that goes back all the way to the beginning. But there are plenty of people out there too, who they do experience their trauma later in life and they're significantly impacted by it. And the challenge for them is that now they suddenly feel isolated and they suddenly feel ostracized and like they can't connect to anybody and that the world is no longer safe. And I, I don't want to leave that population unrepresented in this because that is def- that definitely brings its own set of challenges. And I really, in some ways, I really feel for those people even more because at least when you have this childhood trauma, you have a lifetime of learning coping skills and learning how to deal with it. But if you've had a relatively healthy, normative, safe life up to the point that you had this trauma as an adult, now suddenly your whole world has been turned upside down and you have no idea what to do. And it's the first time that you're even dealing with these kinds of issues. I forget about that because I've been steeped in trauma for so long that not everybody grows up the way I do. But that is true. And I think that priority shift is a big one that I've heard if of people that have trauma later in their lives is all of a sudden their priorities are different when you do try to reach out or you do try to make a meaningful connection. It feels so superficial. And you're either not able to play along anymore with the scripts whether childhood or later trauma, or you don't have enough desire to play along, or you end up on the opposite where you try to hide it and you pretend to be someone else. You mask it, but then you never get the support you need. 
And, and it kind of feels like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You try to be open and honest and authentic about yourself, and you're never going to get fit in. You're not going to make those connections. So you try to hide it, but because you can't be authentic, you never really find a place like you belong. And I think trauma can also damage your ability to connect with others. If you've been in toxic relationships, that may be the only kind of people you have around you. That may be the only ones you know how to interact with, or they may be your family. The very people that abused you or put you through the trauma may be the only supports you have because they did keep you isolated. Or depending on what happened, adult or childhood, it may be now that being violated is the only way you know how to connect to others. Because opening yourself up to actual full vulnerability, emotional and psychological openness is so frightening, but your body's been used and abused so much. What's it matter if you just throw it in the trash a little more? And so you're looking for that piece of human connection and you sell yourself out to get it. And I've been there and I've done that. Just trying to connect and sullying myself and selling myself out especially sexually, I think for a lot of women, you do a lot of things that you end up being very ashamed of because you don't know how else to connect. I would agree with that. But I think even on just a more superficial level, when you have a lot of trauma, especially from a young age, you don't always learn social skills. So you lack some of those social skills. And because of your trauma, and because of how that has skewed your view of the world, when you are trying to connect with people, things that to you seem like totally normal topics of conversation are apparently really inappropriate and you don't realize they're inappropriate until you've said it to somebody and they just stare at you uncomfortably or you say it in a group. And the whole group gets really quiet and awkward for a moment. And you're like, oh, shit, I guess I guess I wasn't supposed to say that because trauma does color your view of the world. It colors your sense of humor, especially if you deal with trauma through a sense of humor, which a lot of us do. You may act inappropriate without even realizing that you're acting inappropriate and you're saying things that are making other people uncomfortable and you may not realize it. And then it's really awkward. It, it, it can be that way for sure. Another way that trauma can really impede you as well is that it causes a lot of dysregulation in your life. If you've been through trauma, no matter when, a lot of times you have symptoms. And so you end up developing things like anxiety, depression, or PTSD because it was trauma or a lot of other comorbid disorders. It could even be drug addictions. You feel constantly exhausted. Your body's out of whack. You're hypervigilant. You're trying to survive in a world that no longer makes sense to you. And it is dysregulating to all of the systems of your body, not just your head, but everything, your adrenals, your digestion, your muscles, everything gets dysregulated. And that really impedes your ability to move forward, which again makes you feel like shit because everybody's passing you on the staircase and you can barely drag yourself up the next step. And part of how a lot of people end up coping with trauma is finding crutches to fall back on. 
because you maybe you don't have skills. Maybe you didn't have the, the luxury of developing good coping skills. So people do fall back on things like codependency, looking for constant distractions, looking for those constant dopamine hits, those feel good, that high from drugs or from sex. And that can make you feel even worse especially if you end up taking those things to the extreme. And even if you aren't using crutches, you may still need external things to function that you or other people do perceive to be crutches, like medication. There's a lot of people that are on medication and they feel like they're being stigmatized for being on it because, well, if you just worked harder at it, you wouldn't need the meds. I even have that to a degree with all the supplements that I take. Sometimes I get down on myself for feeling like I need them. And other times it's been other people kind of pushing that idea on me that, oh, you don't need that. Sometimes it is a literal need that you, you have to do these things for you to be able to function and to be, you know, on some level happy and to be able to achieve some of the things that you want. It's just one of those facts, but it can feel like a crutch and you can feel like you're being shamed or stigmatized for it. All of this leads to a lack of hope as well for a lot of us. And I think that's why you see depression that occurs so commonly with PTSD, no matter when the trauma occurred, because you do end up feeling so hopeless. You are forever changed. I don't care when that trauma happened. There is no going back to before it. And that can be horrifying to you. You know, if it happened later in life, you have a clear picture of what you had and what you could accomplish and what you were doing and how your relationships were. And you see all of that loss. And if this happened as a child and you never got those opportunities, there's that part of you that always wonders, you know, could I have been smarter? Could I have made better relational choices? May I have not ended up in prison if this hadn't have happened? You don't know. And you know, you're never going to know because it's too late. You're fucked. It happened. And sometimes it feels like you're too far gone. The change has made it so deep into you that there is no going back. And for a lot of us, honestly, and this is not meant to be hopeless, there is no going back to that normative point. There is no going to that normative point if you never had it. We'll get to that later. It's not a hopeless point, but that can definitely make you feel hopeless because for a lot of us, normalcy and what is stereotypically and societally considered healthy is now out of your reach. And that feels so overwhelmingly soul crushing. Not only are you this piece of horrible garbage, not only has everything changed, not only do you not belong anywhere, it feels like you never, ever will and you'll never be better. And then even when you do feel like you've gotten healthier. Sometimes it makes you feel even more ostracized because you've spent all of this time intentionally learning and you've really made a conscious effort to get healthy. You've spent all this time doing it and other people have not. Sometimes that can make you feel more alone and just weird because the way that you communicate, the way that you talk about certain things is different from how the average person does. You've put all this effort into healing that other people either haven't or they haven't felt like they needed to. And you end up exactly where you were to begin with, which is being the freak that sticks out like a sore thumb. Before you were shutting things down by being too inappropriate and now you're shutting them down by being too healthy. But all of these, these bits and baubles of trauma end up making you feel really, really crappy about yourself. But like we said, 
that's not the focus of our episode. So now that we've beaten you down and taken out all of your hope, let's bring a little bit of rays of sunshine in here. Let's talk about how you can shift your perspective because the reality is, is even though it feels like you are human garbage, even though it feels like you are failing, even though it feels like you don't belong, that you are intrinsically broken, you are not. You still have a lot of amazing talents and there is still a lot of hope for you to grow and to be functional. You may not be the normative or the normal, but fuck that. Normal's overrated anyways and it's pretty sick and twisted in our culture to begin with. So maybe you'll be something better now. So let's focus now on how we can shift our perspective and gain a little bit more self-esteem around who we are and belief in ourselves, so that we can move forward and honestly heal from the trauma that got inflicted on us. All right. So to get us started out talking about shifting our perspective towards more positive things and taking a more forgiving stance with ourselves and starting to view ourselves in a more positive light, I think the first step here is to begin educating yourself. Start learning about your trauma overall. There's a such a vast spectrum of what trauma is and what it means and the different ways it affects you and the different ways that it impacts your development as a person and your brain chemistry. And I think one of the, the first things there in a more general sense is to realize that you are not overreacting. When you are having these responses to trauma, when you're struggling with these things, when you're having flashbacks, when you're dealing with PTSD, you are not overreacting. You are having a very real reaction to something that happened in the past and your brain is trying to help you survive things that it considers to be similar threats now. But that first step in educating yourself is to realize that whatever your trauma is, how you are responding to it, that is not an overreaction that is a very real reaction to what has happened to you, then you can start learning to understand what your triggers are and why they're there and how that reflects the trauma that you've been through, because that will help you to be able to start processing that trauma and being able to modify your behavior and starting to figure out how to feel safe within yourself and safe within your environment. I think when it comes to really understanding and learning about trauma too, and I hate that we still have to say this, but we do, trauma is real. What it does to you is physiologically real. There are actual physical changes that occur in your brain, in your wiring, in your chemistry, in your body as a response to trauma. So if you're one of those individuals that thinks, oh, you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, or if you only believe in one kind of trauma, well, nobody actually tried to kill you, so what's it matter? I I beg of you, widen your perspective. Trauma is a very physiological, real thing. And I think knowing that and understanding that and understanding how it changes you can be so empowering because it does take that burden of self-blame off of you to some degree. So you have these symptoms. So you have these reactions. It's not your fault. It's not because you're not strong enough. It's just how the human body is. It's just how the human body works. And I think that's really, really important. And hand in hand with that, I really encourage you, if you went through trauma as a child, 
to look into developmental psychology because that is a very, very big piece of understanding exactly how the trauma affected you and how to work with the trauma. Because when you look at developmental psychology, you're talking about children. How do children react? How do children grow? What do they think? How do they perceive? How do they react to situations? And by understanding these things, you can understand how different ages that the trauma occurred can affect you differently because trauma that occurred during infancy or very young childhood is going to be very different than trauma that occurred as an adolescent. And when you understand those things, you also get to understand how to respond to yourself appropriately. Depending on the age you were traumatized, you're going to need to react to it differently. So if you were traumatized as an infant, logic isn't going to touch that. What you're going to need is rocking. You're going to need soothing. You're going to need the closeness of somebody that you love. You're going to need tactile sensations because your mind is processing at that infantile level. But if your trauma occurred when you were an adolescent and then you try to take those exact coping mechanisms or those exact caring mechanisms and apply it, it's probably going to piss you the fuck off because that is not how an adolescent needs to be calmed. That is not how an adolescent needs to be parented. And so when you look into developmental psychology and you learn about children, or if you're just around children and paying attention to them at all, you can really understand, oh shit. No wonder this is happening because that trauma happened when I was six. Now I get how I can respond appropriately because I can respond how six-year-old me needs to be. And I think that's the next big piece in educating is learning how to parent, how to have good relationship skills. Because if this did occur during young childhood, or maybe it even happened later in life, but you never really had good parental skills available, this is the time to learn because you are going to be taking care of yourself, whether that's two-year-old you or 13-year-old you or 34-year-old you, you need to learn how to take care of yourself. When you hear people talk about inner child work, that's what inner child work is. It is you as you are now providing for your inner child what you needed at that age. Because a lot of times when we do experience that sort of trauma, especially from an early age, a lot of us spend a lot of time looking for that parental figure outside of ourselves, looking for someone else to heal us or save us or help us. But inner child work is you being able to take the reins on that as an adult and say, you, speaking to your inner child, you did not get what it was that you needed. And I want to provide that for you and learning how to do that, learning what that child part of you needs and learning how to parent that child so that you can feel safe and so that you can feel as though you can you can process what you went through and you can move forward in a much more healthy and uh, more whole sort of way instead of feeling quite so fragmented. And this also starts extending out into your relationships with other people as well. Not so much the learning parenting skills necessarily, unless you are literally a parent, but learning relational skills, learning how to set boundaries with other people, learning how to have not just respect for that person, but also respect for yourself, be part of your considerations, learning how to communicate with other people and interact with people and be intimate with others without compromising yourself. Those relational skills are very important, whether it be 
the parenting ones we talked about or just relational with others, setting boundaries is one of the first parts of building self-respect. They say, you know, you need to feel worthy to set those boundaries, but sometimes I think setting the boundaries can feel worthy. Things are very cyclical. And so even if you're not quite yet at the point that you do find yourself worthy, if you can start acting in ways that suggests that you believe that, it can start making you believe. Because when you act like it, it can begin to be a reality. So setting those boundaries, taking care of yourself. I know self-care gets touted, but seriously, take care of yourself. Make sure you get fed. Make sure you get to go pee when you want to go pee. I know that sounds ridiculous, but there are so many people in retail and the corporate world that are out there holding it, maybe even right now, because they feel the job's more important than their bladder. You're important. Go go take a piss. That is a very simple thing you can do to start taking care of yourself, but little things like that, and you're eventually going to start feeling more like you're worth taking care of because you are taking care of yourself. I know we all hear that phrase, fake it till you make it, but I would advise you to not think of it in that way. You're not faking it until you get good at it. You are developing a skill. And anytime you are developing a new skill, it is uncomfortable and you're not usually great at it at first, but there is no faking it involved here. You are developing this skill set so that you can be happier and healthier and have more meaningful relationships and be able to care for yourself in ways that you've never been cared for before or that you haven't been cared for in a long time anyway. And if this did happen when you were a child, it's probably going to feel really uncomfortable and really unnatural because it's quite possible you have never been cared for. So you are doing something for yourself that has never happened before. And that's amazing and incredible, but also very difficult. I think on the the note of education, I think another very, very important part of learning to reframe your vision of yourself and how you see yourself is redefining what healthy and happy and successful, what that means for you. Like I said before, there is no going back. This trauma has happened. You are different. That's not bad. As we end every single episode, different does not mean defective. It just means different. It means unique. It means special. It means so many things, but it doesn't mean wrong. It doesn't mean horrible. It doesn't mean leprous. It doesn't mean misfit. It doesn't mean bad. It just means different. And you can still be healthy and you can still be happy and you can still be successful but maybe not with previous expectations, maybe not within societal expectations, and that's okay. But redefining that and learning what does it mean for you to be healthy? What does healthy really mean to you? And honestly, I think this is a great thing about any mental health struggle is that it does force you to question these things. You're not just going along with the societal script. You're not just following the propaganda anymore. You have to stop and say, wait, what does it mean? to be unique, to be this person, to be this. This is a little tangential, but I think it, it a very good parallel of this is those that are raised heterosexual in our society often never have to question their sexuality. And I think that is so sad. I was heterosexual for the longest time, and then I ended up in a relationship that required me to question my sexuality. And because of that, I gained such an amazing understanding of who I was, and I become such a better person, more understanding, kinder, more open, less judgmental, just a better person overall, because I had to question these things for myself and create new ideals around what was honestly 
me. That then went out to everybody else. I no longer expected everybody else to follow these expectations. And so when you define what looks healthy for you, you're redefining societal scripts. You have now the potential to create a better society because you are part of society. And if you're changing you and you're changing those scripts that you play in society, you are in part changing society. Once you have redefined what healthy means and what it means for you specifically, one of the next steps is learning to trust yourself, learning to trust that the version of healthy that feels right for you is right for you, even if other people disagree. Learning to trust in the skills that you're developing to help you heal. Learning to trust that you are becoming more self-aware. Learning to trust that you have the ability to make good choices because of these skills that you're learning. Learning to trust yourself is such a vital part of the healing process, even though yet you've been through these traumas and it's caused all sorts of problems for you and there's been all of these challenges it has in a lot of ways caused you to have to work on yourself and to improve yourself and maybe you've had to work harder at it than other people but that just shows how resilient you are and yeah it sucks that we often end up having to get stronger because of these traumas that we've been through that we haven't that we didn't deserve to have to go through but the fact is, is that we did go through them And when you rise above that and you learn better coping skills and you learn how to parent yourself and you learn to be self-aware, that's a really, really beautiful thing. And you should appreciate that about yourself. Learn to trust that you are healing. Learn to trust yourself to keep you safe. That is such a vital part of this whole process. And it is a lengthy process process. This is years of developing these skills and getting to know yourself better and figuring out how to find your place in the world and figuring out how to heal from what it is that you've been through. Don't expect it to happen overnight, but do look forward to that in the future, that as you work on these things, you will trust yourself. It will happen. It will come about organically when, and you won't even necessarily realize that, realize that it's happening until one day you can look at the decision that you're making and realize, oh, I didn't feel like I had to question myself on that at all. Or you look at, your, at the situation that you're in and you realize that, oh, I actually feel safe here because I trust that I can keep myself safe. I think it is a very lengthy process indeed. And you are being a little bit stronger than a lot of other people. When you do go through trauma, you do learn how to deal with things that a lot of other people can't deal with. And the crazy thing is though, you also end up gaslighting yourself so much into thinking that you can't. I I know for me, being able to trust myself, being able to think I was capable of doing, you know what, being able to think that I was capable, period didn't even happen until about two or three years ago. I didn't really trust that I was capable to keep myself alive until I was 38. How stupid is that? Obviously, I've been keeping myself alive. I've had nobody parenting me since I was about 12. 
And yet there I was at 38, still somehow living. Obviously I'm capable. And it took me that long to realize it. The entire process of educating and learning is a lengthy process and it's ongoing. We like to think of education as you get your high school diploma and then you get your associates and your bachelor's and everything is this nice finished little degree or diploma. But when it comes to education about yourself and education about trauma, probably not going to be a certificate or a diploma. Well, in my case, there was because I took the really expensive route and got a master's in counseling in order to therapize myself. But that was a stupid choice. I recommend therapy. It's a lot cheaper. (laughs) But most of us aren't going to have that certificate. It's just ongoing. Every day you learn a little bit of something. You know, just within the past couple of months, I learned something new about one of my triggers. It's an ongoing process and it can be kind of exciting and kind of enlightening. Yeah, I think it is important to not view it as a destination that you are trying to reach, because that is a mistake that I made when I was younger of thinking that, oh, I'm going to get to this ideal spot of mental health. I'm going to fully heal all of my trauma and then I won't have any problems anymore. I won't have any struggles anymore. I will be normative. I will be accepted. And that was a lie. (laughs) That was bullshit. There is no magical destination. You are continually growing. Like Autumn said, it's ongoing. There is no neat, tidy timeline. There is no degree or diploma that you get. There is no finish line. It is you always learning. You always developing a greater understanding of yourself, learning new skills, honing those skills. It's a forever learning process. And that is actually something to be happy about. I have stopped looking for that destination because I don't actually want that anymore. That, that's not actually an exciting prospect that you just get to this point where everything is perfect and fine within you and then you don't have to grow anymore. I have gotten to a point through my journey where I so enjoy the growing process that I'm a little sad if I go too long without realizing something new about myself. As challenging as it can be sometimes to recognize there are still things to work on, it's it also is a fun thing in some ways to know that you you always have something you always can achieve more you you always can keep growing and each step towards that growth leaves you feeling more competent more capable and more fulfilled and i will be the first to admit that sometimes i get resentful of all the growing i have to do because <laughs> it can get exhausting especially when life stress happens or depression rears up it can get exhausting but i always remind myself that the opposite of growth is stagnation so i will take growth and i will take the stress of that experience every day all right so moving on to the next one we talked about learning and there's a lot to learn obviously but i i think another another really important thing about reframing your perception of yourself when you've been through trauma is learning to be kind to yourself. I know it seems so simple, but it definitely is one of those things easier said than done. And I'm going to say start with, and I know this seems kind of weird, but prioritizing. How is prioritizing being kind to you? Well, if you're anything like me and Ivy, you realize pretty soon in life, you're pretty fucked up. And then you decide you're going to fix all of it now. And that is really overwhelming because you're trying to deal with so much shit. And so I think learning to prioritize is actually learning to be kind to yourself because you're allowing yourself to take things one at a time, not overloading, not expecting yourself to work miracles before your 18th birthday. You're saying, hey, this is a lifelong process. Let's prioritize what actually needs to be worked on. 
that allows me to rest. That allows me to succeed as well. I would agree with that. And one of the first steps to prioritizing it is figuring out what actually needs to be focused on first. What is the most pressing? What is the most important to start tackling? But that is a really important aspect of prioritizing. Figure out what needs attention first and what you can start doing about that in the little ways. And then everything will build on itself. I know there's that desire to just deal with it and be done because you just want to feel better, but it is a process that builds on itself. Figure out what needs to be addressed first, focus on that. And you would be surprised at how often that actually naturally leads you to focusing on the next most important thing. I I love the triage concept, especially because triage is used, for those of you that don't know, in like emergency room settings or battlefield um, medical camps. It's the idea of treating those individuals that are at most risk for death. And the reason I love the triage idea when it comes to trauma is because that is literal. So for me, one of the things that I had to focus on first was my suicidality. It was life or death. If I did not focus on the depression that was driving me to want to kill myself, there's a good chance I might have killed myself. So I love the triage concept because it is, it's a literal translation. It's what is most likely to kill you. What symptom, what issue, what piece of the trauma, what trigger is causing the most significant interference? And then you step it down, step it down, step it down. You know, if it's not what's killing you, it's what's disrupting your life to the point that it could. And then you step it down a little further. And eventually you're triaging little stuff. You know, it feels like you go from dealing with shrapnel and mines into having to deal with hangnails. And some days, I I will admit, it feels a little pathetic to me because I come up with this tiny little issue and I call Ivy and we hash it out and we laugh because it's so simple. And I'm like, I could be doing so much more with my skills. But then I'm very happy I'm not because it means I've worked on myself so much that what I'm triaging is now the equivalent of a hangnail. So I love that part. I think also it's important to note that you want to be aware of reality versus perception. When we've been through trauma, you're living in survival mode. And that means that almost everything is perceived as a threat, even though it's not. And so it's important to identify, okay, is this really a threat to my life or my functioning or my ability to move forward? Or am I perceiving it as something that needs to be addressed now? when it really isn't. Being able to to begin to develop that reality. And sometimes that takes somebody else, a sounding board or a therapist or a support group or a friend that you can reach out and be like, I'm so concerned about X. I think it just, it's such a big issue. Can you give me some feedback? On a funny note, a couple of years ago, Autumn and I were having a conversation about you know all the work that we've done and the trauma that we've processed and how much we've healed and all of that, but how difficult it can still be to figure out what actually is a crisis, what actually is a threat to you versus just this belief that things are a threat to you because you're so used to being in survival mode. And we kind of compared it to, if you've ever seen the movie Robin Hood Men in Tights, there's, there's a part in there where... Little John falls into a stream where there's, I don't know, maybe a couple of inches of water. And he starts thrashing around wildly because he feels like he's drowning. 
then Robin Hood pulls him out of the water and little John acts like, oh, you just saved my life. I almost died. And some of those conversations that Autumn and I have where, where we reality check with each other, where we talk about these things, it feels a little bit like that. Because when you're so used to being in survival mode, you interpret everything as being a threat. And once you actually start to get healthy and you start doing better and you've processed a lot of things and you actually do have the coping skills to manage it, there's a part of your brain sometimes that's looking for things to be a crisis. And it's turning it into that because, well, the other shoe has always dropped before. Obviously, it's going to do that now. So you get up in your head about these things and you start thinking that everything is a priority. Everything is a crisis. Everything is a problem. And it really does help to get some outside perspective and it, and to do some reality checking on yourself too. Am I just thinking this way because I'm just stuck in this mode, because I'm just expecting the worst to happen, because I am geared up for trauma to occur all the time? Or is this something that actually needs to be dealt with? So learning how to reality check with yourself within also being able to pull in other people as sounding boards is really important in being able to do that because you don't want to be thrashing around in a stream of two inches of water and thinking that you're about to die because that's not <laughs> that's not realistic. I remember that conversation. That was really amusing, especially when we both realized where we were at with it and how ridiculous we were honestly being and what we were doing. I think it's also important to because we talked a lot about your own priorities, but if you're a really hyper responsible person or you've been used to taking care of others or being responsible for others, this may apply to their issues as well, because it may feel like whatever they have going on is also a priority. And it's important to start again, like we spoke back a little bit with those boundaries and identifying how much of yourself you are willing and how much of yourself you are actually honestly capable of giving. Other people's crises, other people's issues, other people's, oh my God, I forgot to do and now you have to. They're not necessarily your problem. Sometimes they are. I'm not going to say they're never. Sometimes in life they are, but they're not always. Or they're not always to the degree that you have to be the one responsible for it or you have to be the one fixing it. So also keep that in mind if you are hyper-responsible other people's issues and putting that into the triage chart as well. Because like we've said before, you only have so many fucks to give. You don't want to spend them all and have nothing left for yourself. A really good friend of mine who was the, the super responsible one and the golden child in her household, she said something to me once that has always stuck with me because I was feeling super stressed out about something that was going on with somebody else that I felt was a problem I had to fix because they didn't take care of it. And she looked at me and she said, you need to remember this phrase and repeat it to yourself anytime this situation comes up. A lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. And that has stuck with me ever since then, because yes, like Autumn said, sometimes you, you are actively involved in that person's life. And when things fall apart with them, it does impact you. But there are also a lot of times when we find ourselves trying to make everything better because that allows us to feel safer too. So we're trying to fix everybody else's problems as well as our own so that we can create this peaceable environment where everything is, is all right and everybody is safe and we can feel relaxed. But it's not always our responsibility. And we need to not let other people just pass off 
their responsibilities onto us as well. Even if we're capable of doing it, it's not our place to do it. And we need to remember too, that that person also needs to be given an opportunity to grow. And sometimes that means letting them get out of their own messes and not allowing their drama and their crisis to become ours. And I think another really important thing here when we're talking about priorities is recognizing that our priorities that we choose for ourselves may not match up to what other people think those priorities should be. And that can be, you know, family or friends, or that can just be society overall. Maybe your parents are really pushing you to get married. Well, that may not be your priority. Maybe you want to work on yourself. Maybe you don't feel like you're ready for a relationship yet. It can also be career. Society really pushes us towards career. Soon as we get into high school, what do you want to do for a living? What are you going to go to college for? That may not be your priority. That may not be something you even have the capacity to factor in right now. You may want and need to focus on other things. So what you prioritize for yourself may not always match up with what other people think your priority should be. And that's where learning to trust yourself comes in as well. Trusting that the priorities that you've chosen, the things that you are working on for yourself and that you're focusing on, that those are valid things to work on and that you know yourself and what you need, even if other people don't understand it or agree with it. That is another part of being kind to yourself is believing in your own priorities. And that can be very difficult in the face of societal pressure. And I can attest to that personally. Like I said, I got a master's in mental health counseling. I never got licensed. I've never honestly really used that degree, maybe one or two years past when I graduated. And it is a waste of money and a lot of people see it as a waste of potential talent and money earning capabilities. And my priority was not being suicidal. My priority was learning to heal. My priority was learning how to not be an enabler. My priority was me and my life and my goals, not a career, not making sense of a degree that was a mistake to get. And I still get a lot of a lot of judgment. It's usually quiet. It's usually passive, but it's there and it's hard. But believe, be kind with yourself and believe you did what you needed to do. If you're still here, if you're still living, if you're still functioning, obviously you did what you needed to do. Moving on from prioritization, we'd be amiss if we did not mention changing vocabulary. And we're not going to hit hard on this because we we mention it so often because it's so important. Uh, We are telling ourselves stories about ourselves all the time. And if your story is shitty, then you're going to feel shitty about yourself. So you need to rewrite your story in a more positive way. And that comes down to changing the very words you use. And as Ivy said before, you don't have to jump into the positive but work your way up. You know, I am a dumpster fire. Well, maybe you're a dumpster garden. Maybe you have all sorts of amazing little mushrooms and things growing in you that is developing an ecological life. And then from there, you can move on to I am a beautiful garden and drop the dumpster completely, step by step. But changing vocabulary is extremely important in learning to be kind to yourself. If you want more detail on that, if you want to hear us harp about vocabulary, vocabulary a little bit more. Our last episode on body image issues, we talked about it much more in depth. Obviously with that, we were focused a little bit more on the physicalities of ourselves, but those sorts of vocabulary changes also can apply to these sorts of things. That's even looking at your vocabulary 
choices when it comes to survivor versus victim, uh, thriving versus surviving, learning to destigmatize certain terminology that comes with mental health stuff. Changing your narrative is super important. It's a very vital step in this process. And again, if you want more information on that, you can listen to our last episode on body image issues to get more info. Now, when it comes to being kind to yourself, it's also important to recognize and respond to your needs. Now, a lot of times I think people leave the recognize part off, but for many of us who have been through trauma, I think the recognize is just as vital as the respond because so many of us are not able to recognize our needs. Like I said, we're living in survival mode and anything that is not direct survival often gets ignored. Or we've been through such harsh, extreme situations that things that aren't gigantic, life-threatening crises feel irrelevant. And that is not the case. So when you're being kind to yourself, being able to recognize needs, even small ones, and then responding to them appropriately. And a lot of times, you may not realize that you overlooked a need until you've overlooked it, until you've burnt out, until you've suffered because you haven't met that need. And that's okay. That's how you learn. That's how I did it for a lot of times. I would end up in burnout. I would end up exhausted. I would end up depressed. I would end up out of my mind with anxiety because I had not met my needs. I had not taken care of myself. But every time I did that, I, I took it as an opportunity to look back and say, okay, what needs did I have? When could I have met these needs? How could I have met these needs? How could I react differently to them in the future? And I created plans to be able to respond to them, but even more importantly, to be able to recognize that I had a need in the future so that I could respond to it. I'll admit I still suck at this. That, that, that is still one of the hardest things for me is to recognize that I have needs and to do anything with them at all. Because a lot of times I still don't see it. And I may not see it for weeks or maybe even months with some things. And then like Autumn mentioned that burnout, I'll hit a wall and I'll realize, holy shit, this has been neglected for a very long time. I have a really bad habit of always thinking, oh, well, this thing is more important. This is more pressing. This has to get done. And I will do that and I will... <laughs> I will run myself into the ground and then one day I wake up and I am just hating life and I realize I spent so much time doing things that were so much more important that actually didn't matter that much. It would have been fine if those things didn't get done. But I have it in my mind that I have to do those things because part of what I based my worth on as somebody who has been through all this trauma and has felt like damaged goods and does have the, my, my struggles with neurodivergency, I have based a lot of my worth on what I can accomplish, how competent I am, how hard I can work, how many hours I can put in. And that has caused me to neglect myself a lot. And that awareness can be really difficult to develop, especially if you find yourself always trying to take care of other people as well. When you have your work responsibilities and then you have your family responsibilities, you're putting everybody else first and you don't even realize how much you're hurting yourself. It's really important to develop that awareness, to listen to yourself, to, to not 
put these things on the back burner to not tell yourself, oh, I don't actually need that. I'll be fine with that. I only need four hours of sleep tonight. Don't fall into the trap of doing that. Listen to yourself. Learn to notice those cues that you do have needs. And I do want to note too that when you do burn out, when you don't recognize these needs, it's not a failure. And that is something I want to point out is if you if you've been through trauma and you are still here and you are still listening to this, you did what you needed to do to survive. Your body, your mind, your psyche, your soul, yourself did what it needed to survive and it pulled you through that situation. And that goes back to trusting yourself. So maybe, yes, you are putting all of your needs on the back burner to meet somebody else's, but maybe meeting somebody else's needs is kind of what you need to do psychologically right now until you can make a little bit of further growth. So when you're not achieving these things and you're not educating yourself today or you haven't changed your vocabulary or you burnt out because you didn't recognize your needs, it's not a failure. Trust that your body and that your mind are doing what they need to do to protect themselves. And you're still going to feel shitty and you're still going to burn out and there's still going to be issues, but you're still here and you're still surviving and you're still growing and you're still changing. And that's what's really important. And you're fine tuning so that eventually you can recognize these needs and you can put yourself forward more. And then your body will naturally learn to do that because it's now at a place where it can survive and it can live and it can thrive at a higher level than it ever has before. So never look at any of this if you're not achieving this as a failure. It's just an opportunity for growth and trust that your body and your mind are doing what they need to do to survive. This is another one that I think so many of us struggle with, even those of us that haven't been through trauma asking for help. This is another big way to be kind to yourself is asking for help. And I think if this is a really big struggle for you, it's important to triage where you focus on asking for help. You know, if your career is vitally important to you and your mentality and your growth, then prioritize learning to ask for help within that corporate world, within that employment world, so that you can fulfill that. But If relationships are really important, start learning to ask for help on an intimate level. Identify what's important in your life so that you can ask for help in different locations. We always think about this being as, you know, big things like, oh, I'm going through a hard time. Can you help me? Or sometimes it's asking the store employee where the ketchup is at. Sometimes it's seeing that there was a bank error and filing the little chat thing to let the bank know. Sometimes asking for help is that simple. Part of receiving help is sometimes not even asking for it. It's just letting other people help you. I have definitely experienced this a lot in my relationship with Calvin because in every other relationship that I've had on top of working and doing all those things, I feel like I am responsible for doing all the cooking, doing all the cleaning, doing all the domestic things. Maybe that's just wired into me by society and and the patriarchy, or maybe it has something to do with my upbringing, but I always feel like those things are my responsibility too. And I so many times have worn myself down so much trying to do all of it. And Calvin actually gets cranky with me sometimes. He's like, just let me help you. And it it takes everything that I have not to be a stubborn jackass and be like, no, I don't need your help. I can take care of it. Sometimes he has literally had to 
kind of bump me out of the way when I'm preparing dinner and be like, go sit on the couch for a bit. I will make dinner. And I'm getting to a point finally where I can let him do those things. And I can recognize that he is doing those things because he loves me and he sees that I'm wearing myself down and he doesn't want that to happen. But sometimes it's not always even learning to ask for help. Sometimes it's learning to receive it when people offer it instead of just pushing those people away and thinking that you have to do everything for yourself. And that kind of goes into finding a place to belong. That is a really important part of this. A lot of times we try to act as though we don't need anybody else. And part of that is because we struggle with feelings of safety. Once you've been through trauma, it's hard to believe that you're going to be okay, that you're going to be safe, that you're going to be accepted, that you're going to be loved. So finding a place where you can belong and starting out by finding a safe space that may be one-on-one therapy, that may be a support group, that may be your relationship with your pets, with friends, with your lover, or sometimes it may even be learning to develop that safe space within yourself, a safe place for you to open up, to become more intimate, to start developing that connectedness, to start caring for yourself and allowing others to, to take a more active role in helping to take care of you as well and showing their love and affection. And that safe place may not always start in a personal relationship because that can be really overwhelming for the other person, particularly when you first start processing a significant trauma. A lot of times it does get worse before it gets better. And you may actually need a trained therapist or a support group, some sort of more clinical safe space where you can start that process of healing and you can start that start processing what it is that you've been through. And then that can start extending out over time into finding those safe spaces with people on a more intimate level. And that safety is something that, that needs to be learned. I'm a personal believer that you cannot heal from trauma without a safe place. You can maybe continue to function. You can push forward. You can do a lot of things. But actually healing requires a sense of safety to some degree. And like Ivy said, where that safety is, is such a range. And I did write a blog a little while back. I think it's a two-parter, why it gets worse before it gets better. The complications of healing with trauma and how that can affect interpersonal relationships and why therapists can be so helpful with this because they are that step removed. Creating that safety is vital because if you are stuck in survival mode, you're not going to be able to make the changes you need to make because that's not what your body needs. Your body needs to survive and that's what everything is going to drive you to do. It's not until you find safety that things are going to be able to relax enough that you can make changes and adapt and rewire and reprogram. And that safe place, if you can't afford a therapist, if you can't afford a support group, it can be yourself. It can be a closet in your house. It can be a physical thing. It can be a person thing. But creating some little tiny iota of safety is absolutely vital. And then when it comes to finding a place to belong, unless you are independently wealthy. Employment is going to be a big part of your life. We got to pay the bills. I'm going to be really honest. It's probably going to be very hard to find a place where you truly belong that you can work at. For a lot of us, we're going to have to compromise. And you may not find a place where you feel like you belong. And these people are my family. 
but you can at least find a line of employment that is not re-traumatizing, a line of employment that is not going to cause further issues for you. And it may be that this line of employment does not fit within the narrow confines of a specific career field or what society thinks is successful. That's okay. If you were on the track to be pre-med and you realize you can't be a doctor and you end up going blue collar and being a mechanic, that's okay. Does it help you grow? Does it help you survive? Does it help you be healthier and happier? Then excellent. That is a line of employment in which you belong. That was actually a really important thing for me. I've talked about this a little bit before in other episodes. I kind of fell into the field of massage therapy, but wow, did that end up working out for me really well. Because even though I don't really develop close relationships to most of the massage therapists that I've worked with, I don't develop a sense of family in places that I work at. I, I, I'm not into that. But the profession overall, the way the industry operates, works really well for my neurodivergency and my my trauma coping and all of those things. It is a low stress profession, low sensory profession overall. It allows a lot of flexibility with scheduling because the way that industry works is pretty much anywhere you go to work, you set your schedule, you decide what days you're going to work, you decide what hours you're going to work. To some degree, as long as you work for a good place, you work for yourself, you decide who you are willing to work on. So finding a place where you can belong as far as employment goes, like Otto said, it's not always necessarily about finding a place that feels like home as far as the people that you're working with, but finding employment that allows you the flexibility and freedom to work around the challenges that you have that fits your personality and fits your neurodivergency. And it may take you a while to figure out what that is. There are plenty of people that bounce around from one job to another, from one career to another until they find what works for them. And sometimes they never find one thing that works for them because maybe part of what they need is to have a variety of different things. But finding a form of employment that allows you to have the freedom and flexibility that you need to live your life as you want to live it. There are some compromises that you will have to make. I'm never going to make a six-figure income from being a massage therapist. It's just the way that it is. But there's no way in hell I could work in the corporate world. I am suicidal in a corporate world. I am depressed. My body hurts. I hate dealing with people in the corporate world. I hate the rules. I hate the structure. I hate the way that I have to dress. Everything about it is fucking awful to me. I learned that a long time ago. I won't do that again. Maybe massage won't be the right fit for me forever either, but it works for me right now. And I'm allowing myself the flexibility to switch to something else later if I want to without feeling as though I am a failure. Choose something that's going to work for you. Employment is a large part of our life, but there's another part of our life where hopefully, at least some of the time, we're not working. And it is very beneficial to have some kind of support. And I think when you're seeking out those supports, it's important to find others who have experienced similar things to you that understand trauma, or at the very least can validate. You know, not everybody can relate to the trauma. Not everybody's been through trauma and you don't need to to be able to validate and respect that. My boyfriend grew up in a normative, loving, I would say healthy environment. I don't think he's experienced trauma in his life, but 
He respects that I have, and he's able to validate my feelings on that. There's actually a great song, which I'll have Ivy put up on the resources page for this podcast episode. It's a song by Maren Morris called To Helen Back. And it talks about the idea of you didn't save me. You didn't think I need saving. You didn't change me. You didn't think I needed changing. And I think that's really important to find in people that you are going to be surrounding yourself with socially is those people that accept you as you are and don't see you as defective or don't see you as broken or don't see you as somebody in need of saving because you're not in need of saving. You, you're growing, you're changing, you saved yourself a long damn time ago. What you need is somebody to support you and somebody to have your back and somebody to understand you. I think another good example of that is Eeyore from, from Winnie the Pooh. All of his buddies in the Hundred Acre Wood, nobody looked down on him because he was depressed all the time. They didn't try to change anything. They didn't try to force him to fit their expectations. They didn't try to fix him. They just accepted that that's where he was at. And they still cared about him and they still loved him and they still wanted him to be involved and part of things. And I think that really is the ideal is to find people that you can have that kind of dynamic with, either because they do understand it on a very personal level because they've been through it or because they just care about you and they just love you. And they see what an, what an amazing person you are and they see all these good things in you. And they recognize that you would not be the person that you are without the things that you've been through, without the skills that you've developed. It's also really important for you to make good decisions for yourself when it comes to your social circle. Don't be afraid to be selective about who is in your life. If somebody is not contributing in a positive way to your life, if they're putting your, if they're putting you down, if they are invalidating you, if they're trying to control you or they're trying to pressure you or they're trying to fix you, or you don't have to deal with that. You can be selective about who you allow into your life. That is perfectly acceptable. And that's a really important part of finding a safe space of being able to feel safe enough to be intimate with other people. And I'm not just talking about sexually intimate. I'm talking about being able to form real, meaningful connections with people. And when you are looking for you know, good people to have in your life, we talked about before, you know, finding people who can relate or, or validate. Another important thing to be looking for is people who will not take your issues personally. If you if you pull a me and you do a disappearing act for a few weeks, finding people who don't take that personally, the people that I am really close to recognize that that's just something that I do. When I'm having a hard time with something, I tend to just kind of withdraw into myself for a little bit. And then I come back when I'm ready and they don't worry about it too much. They may check in with me, just be like, hey, are you still alive? But they don't take it personally if I don't respond right away. They don't take it personally if I need to take some time away for myself. Look for people like that. With that, I do want to note that it may be necessary for you to create relational dynamics where people can not take it personally. Because part of that is, of course, a personal choice, whether or not the world's about me or not. But the reality is, is especially for those of us that have been through trauma or even just have significant mental health struggles, we're going to do some shit that's going to potentially fuck some shit up. That's that's a good bet at some point. And if you are very personally involved with another person and you go off the rails or you make a risky decision, 
that is going to personally affect them. And they do have the right to take that personally. So an excellent example is me and my boyfriend. We both live together. It takes both of our incomes in order to continue having shelter, owning our animals, having a car. We're not able to maintain this lifestyle with one income. So that means that if I ever decide to lose my shit and quit my job and go to bed for three months, well, yes, my boyfriend is going to take that personally and he has a right to because it's fucking up his life. And so that is something to consider as well is if you are afraid that you're not quite at the point where you're able to be stable or functional, not necessarily intertwining yourself into a relationship where somebody is dependent on you for financial needs or emotional needs so that you have the room and the freedom to do what you need to grow, to make the mistakes you need to learn, to make the changes you need to learn, to make the choices to completely upend your life however you need to so that you can grow and heal. And if you are in a relationship and you do have people that are dependent on you and you do mess things up, quote unquote, it's, it's not the end of the world. We all, trauma, not trauma, mental health struggles, not mental health struggles, it's part of being in a relationship is having issues with one another, being an ass some of the time. You just do something and you're, you're, you were to blame. You were the one. You were an asshole. You can own that. That doesn't mean you're a horrible person. Again, be kind to yourself. This is just the human experience. We're not perfect. But make sure you're moving forward with it. You mitigate the damages. You apologize. And to me, an apology isn't just I'm sorry. It's how am I going to change? I got very upset and I broke this plate in the kitchen. Here's the reason why. Here's how it triggered me. This is how I'm working to not destroy all of our place setting because it's really nice and it costs a lot at Target, you know, moving forward with it, but not feeling like it's a failure, but just recognizing, hey, you're human. We all make mistakes in relationships. I think too, another thing to keep in mind when you do make mistakes and you do have to apologize and try to make amends and try to correct behavior, don't think of that as just another way in which you're broken. Because even the most healthy, normative people will lose their shit sometimes. Even the most healthy, normative people will unintentionally or intentionally maybe hurt their loved ones. It is something that happens. It's part of being human. It's part of human relationships. Yes, make amends, apologize, correct behavior. But don't assume that you're the only person that ever does this and it's just further evidence that you're a fucked up horrible person and that you deserve to die and that you don't deserve to have anybody who loves you or cares about you that is a very extreme way of thinking on some level that's survival mode as well it's not letting yourself form close connections to people because it's not safe it's not safe for them it's not safe for you don't let that happen remember that everybody no matter how traumatized they are, or no matter how normative and healthy they are, everybody will make mistakes. Everybody will, at some point in their life, hurt another person. It's just a thing that happens. It's not the end of anything. It doesn't mean that you're awful. It doesn't mean that they're awful. It just means there's things to be worked on. There's misunderstandings to be cleared up. That's totally acceptable 
and okay. I know they always tell you to focus on the positives of your partner, especially if you're in a long-term or a marital type relationship. But I feel like if you have come from trauma and you do have that feeling of being fucked up, it is important to identify some of the ways in which your partner is also fucked up. Because again, no matter how normative are, we all have our things. You know, they whistle annoyingly. Their poop stinks horribly and they're in the bathroom for two hours. They never do the dishes. They can't close a drawer. We all have something. And I think especially if you feel like you are the garbage dumpster in this relationship, find a few of the things that your partner does that are equally annoying or horrible just to be like, yeah, you know what? This is an equal thing. Yes, I have shit that I do wrong. So do they. And also with that, finding things that you do for them. Well, they're always there for me when I fall apart and they help carry the load financially. Well, you're contributing something too, or they wouldn't be there. There's something about you they like, and that's why they're there. Don't just see all the negative in yourself and just the positive in them, because that's going to skew things. Balance it out a little bit. And I think that goes right into our next point of finding your own worth finding those things that you are contributing. And I think for a lot of us that have gone through trauma, unfortunately, we tend to base our worth on a single thing. They talk about not putting all your eggs in one basket. I I think that goes really well with worth too, because if all of your worth is in your ability to please others, well, the minute you upset somebody, you're worthless again. So being able to diversify and see the many, many ways in which you do have worth. And maybe it would even be helpful to actually have something tangible that you can look at when you find yourself struggling to see your worth. Maybe start keeping a notebook of things that are wonderful about you, skills that you have, things that you're good at, things that you contribute to not just your romantic relationships, but relationships in general, things that are just inherently good about you. Keep a notebook of all of these types of things So that when you are struggling to see your worth, you have something that you can look to and be like, okay, on my better days, when I'm seeing things more clearly, I can recognize that I have all of these good attributes. I have all of these things that make me feel worthy and valuable. And I am worthy and valuable, even if I am not feeling that way today. This is a temporary feeling and it is not realistic. I am not trash just because I feel that way today. And when you are really struggling, maybe try to find some ways that you can take back your power. If you feel like you have been physically abused by other people, maybe learning a skill like martial arts where you feel like you could actually protect yourself. If you have been sexually abused Maybe you could take a pole dancing class or an aerial yoga class or something like that for you, not to show off to other people, but for you to inhabit your own body in a way that allows you to feel powerful and strong and graceful and beautiful for yourself. Therapy is another great way to take back your power. It doesn't always necessarily feel that way. Sometimes when you first get into therapy, You might feel weak, you might feel more vulnerable, you're going to feel more challenged, but you learn things through therapy and you're learning to process the things that you've been through and you're confronting those things and you are taking 
back the power over your own life and your own mind and you're adapting and you are learning how to live a better life for yourself. I think another way that you can find worth being successful, and again, this goes back to defining what success is at first, because you may not be successful according to societal standards. Honestly, societal standards of success are only set up for a very small portion to be successful, and that's intentional so that we have a large degraded workforce so those in power can continue to be in power and have money. So fuck that find your own way to be successful, you know, and that may be finding things that increase your confidence and your sense of competence. Maybe success doesn't fucking matter for you at all. That's okay, too. Maybe your version of success is to not give a shit about whether or not you're successful. Maybe your version of success is just to live your life and be like, yep, I'm kind of digging this not really caring too much about potential or whatever. I feel like I don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about those things. Me living is successful. I'm still fucking here. By by all standards, I should not be alive anymore. So I'm still here. I'm, I'm still functional. I'm still productive in my own way. I guess that is successful. And I think that's totally valid too. I mean, we put a lot of a lot of weight on success and a lot of weight on being productive. And that's not necessarily something you need to do. So if sex, success ultimately isn't important, finding a way to diverge away from it. And I think for those of us that came out of a traumatic experience, feeling like we had to succeed to be loved or we had to succeed to feel safe, I think a vital part with this is learning to fail. Because I was the golden child and because my sense of worth and my ability to be safe and to be loved was so tied to my performance, I never participated in anything that I could fail at until my 30s. Everything I did, I was golden at. Otherwise, I didn't do it. And so if you find yourself being that way and you feel overly tied to success to the point that it's almost a burden or you feel you're doing it as a a safety feature as instead of something you want to do, find safe places to fail. Very specific examples. I suck, 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 suck so hardcore at music. I cannot read music. I am not good at, um, you know, knowing what my body is doing and being able to like do things with my hands to make instrumental sounds. So I tried to learn play the guitar. I, I failed at that. It was not good. I tried and I sucked and it was okay. And it was an amazing experience learning that even when I didn't succeed, I was still worthy of love. I was still here. I was still safe. I was still okay. So when it comes to success, find a way to be successful if it's important to you. Fuck it if it's not. And if you feel like you're too tied into it, find a way to let yourself fail in a safe place. Another really important and valuable step in both healing from your trauma and then also learning to shift your perspective into viewing yourself in a more negative, in a more, in a more negative light, in a more positive light. Don't view yourself more negatively. That's not the goal. But to view yourself in a more positive light is learning to be in a state of acceptance. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that we will just have to accept. This one has been particularly hard for me. One of the first things that I had to accept was that you may never get closure from other people. You may never get closure from the people who traumatized and abused you. I did get closure with my mom because my mom 
her all of her flaws was a very genuine, sincere, and I believe self-aware person. And she really did try to make amends. And we did heal our relationship by the time that she passed. But the most detrimental force in my life and the most damaging and abusive force in my life was my father. I will never get closure from him. Through my teens and most of my 20s, I had it in my head that I had to get an apology from him. That's how I was going to heal. I will never get that apology. I don't think he's capable of it, to be perfectly honest. He does not see himself as somebody who has made mistakes or any mistakes he may have had were somebody else's fault. He's never really apologized for anything he's ever done. He's never accepted accountability for it. And he, he never will. We may not always get an apology and we can't rely on that for our healing. We often have to find closure from within, which is what I have spent the last several years really working on. And especially the last couple of years while I've been back in intensive therapy is finding closure from within not being dependent on that apology and even recognizing that if I got that apology from him, it may not even make a difference. I still would have to find that closure from within. So that's one of those things that can be really difficult to accept, but it's so important to accept that and to see the power in that too, because you're not reliant on another person to find closure and to find healing. You can find that from within. You are fully capable of doing that. And it's also really important to allow yourself to grieve what you have lost. Because you have, when you have been traumatized, when you have gone through something significant like that, you have experienced a loss. Maybe you experienced the loss of your innocence, the loss of your sense of safety, the loss of what you believed love was. There are so many losses that get wrapped up in trauma, and it's often complex. It's usually not just one thing. So allowing yourself to really grieve for what you've lost and to, I guess, give yourself condolences, that's a really important part of healing, and it's a really important part of being able to shift your perspective of yourself because when you allow yourself that opportunity to grieve, when you do offer yourself those condolences, when you are being gentle with yourself in that way, you are counteracting that internal message that says, all of this was my fault. I caused it all, or I wasn't strong enough to stop it, or I wasn't good enough, or there's something messed up about me. I'm damaged goods now. When you allow yourself to grieve, you are counteracting that message you are accepting that you lost something in this, that you were a victim at one point. That doesn't mean you are a victim forever, but you were a victim at one point. Something was inflicted upon you that you did not deserve and something was taken from you. It's really important to allow yourself to grieve that. It really is. I, I really like the use of the term grief, and I've heard this a lot more in trauma therapy and the trauma psychology world about grieving your losses. And I love the word grief because grief is not finite. For those of you that have experienced a significant loss, you know that even years, sometimes decades later, that grief will rear up. And I think that's important to accept as well. When you do have that loss, 
you may come to terms with it and you may learn to accept it, but that doesn't mean that that acceptance is going to stay at that same level forever. It doesn't mean that later you're not going to be upset by it again because it is a grief. I think one of my biggest grief is my loss of potential. What could I have achieved? Could I have had my own home now instead of temporary housing? Could I have been successful as maybe a psychologist? Could I have helped other people? Could I have been in a stable relationship? Could I be at a point in my life where I'm not worried about having to work forever because I'm never going to be able to retire because I don't have enough money? I lost all that potential because of the shit I went through. I will never know. And I've come to terms with it. And this is the life I am. And honestly, I like myself a lot because of who I am, which I only became because of the things I went through. But I still occasionally get very upset by that. And all those stages of grief I've gone through, even to the point of resentment and anger at the fact that I've lost it and anger at my parents, even my mom, who I very much love dearly, and then just sadness and despondency. That grief is just as real and just as complex and just as dynamic when it comes to the losses you experience with trauma. Moving away from that, accepting that society is fucked up too. Okay, so a lot of I feel the judgment we get, especially once we're out of the trauma, is that something is wrong with us because we're not fitting in right. Now that I've not really been part of society and I got to see outside of society to the point that I could look at it, not really a big fan. There's a lot of things that are really, really fucked up about our society So you know what? I'm kind of good (laughs) with not fitting in to societal expectations with that. And I think it's really important to accept that idea that there are many portions of society that are wrong, no matter what society you live in, that are skewed, that are maladaptive, that are harmful, that are traumatic on societal levels. Because once you can accept that and you can look at your redefined success and your redefined health, you can really start to acknowledge, damn, I'm doing important work to help change these things about society that are all so fucked up. And I think that part steps directly into accepting that you are changed, that you are different. One of the things that I love, a lot of the research is looking at now, is they're looking at PTSD as neurodivergence. And so if you're not familiar with neurodivergence, this is a term that was initially applied within the autistic community. It's the idea that not necessarily you are disabled and you are broken. It's the idea that you are different. You think differently. You act differently. You process and perceive differently, but it can actually be a beneficial thing. Yes, these differences can cause issues, oftentimes because society is not set up to accept these differences. These differences can also create so many more positive things. They can create changes in society. They can offer creativity that you never would have had before. They can allow you kindnesses that you would not have participated in had your brain not been altered. This neurodivergence is a new path. Instead of having to go down the same beaten, dirty, stinking rut that everybody else in society just figured, well, this was the only way to do it. I guess we're going to follow it. You get to machete your way through the forest. And yes, that can be very exhausting. I'm not going to negate that. As a person with PTSD, as a person with autism, it is fucking exhausting sometimes macheteing your way through the forest. 
but the discoveries you make, the views you get, the freshness and newness that you experience can be incredible, life-altering, amazing. And it's not just life-altering for you. It can be life-altering for the others around you as well. On that note, all of these things we've talked about with acceptance and the impact that trauma really can have on you and your view of the world, I think another really important thing to accept that can really help you shift your perspective is that because your vantage point has changed from the trauma that you have been through, you have so much more to contribute to the world at large. There is a lot that comes from trauma when you choose to rise above it, when you choose to break those patterns, it does change you in ways that to you may seem awful and horrible and challenging, but that can start shifting society overall, that can help other people see things in a different way, that can help process of evolution for humanity on a more global scale, because we need to evolve. We need to start breaking out of these boxes. We need to start doing things differently. And nobody is better equipped to help that change than someone who has been through some shit and risen above it and learned a lot about themselves and other people and the world along the way. So I think that's another important thing to accept that can really positively impact your perception of yourself as someone who's experienced trauma. That trauma, when you allow it to, can be a blessing in disguise for yourself and for the world at large. It's not always easy. And it's not always clean, but there, there is something beautiful there. And you have the power to make it beautiful. And I think that's really the key thing, because we're not saying that trauma is good or whatever happened to you, it's a good thing that it happened or that was a blessing. Like Ivy said, it's the choices you make and the power you have to grow from that to make that beauty because that's where that's where that blessing is it is in your choices to change in your choices to reprogram in your choices to become more and i think that speaks directly to the very last thing we wanted to talk about today to help reframe that negative self-image that can come from trauma is finding hope and i think hope starts with the tiniest things, and that is focusing on the positive. Like we've talked about before, the human mind is programmed to focus on the negative, and that does help you survive, but we are trying to get out of that survival mode and into living and thriving mode. And in order to do that, you do need to start seeing some of the positive things. And, you know, just a gratitude prompt a day, something even small like that, finding something to be grateful for to help you break out of those negative patterns of thought so that you can break out of that survival mode. On the note of focusing on those positives, I would say also focus on the progress that you are making in your own development. Because even when it's really, really hard and you want to give up, focus on how far you have come and the skills that you have developed as a result. An example of that for me, most of my relationships as an adult have been shit. Like my romantic relationships have been shit. I have 
historically chosen men who were way too old for me, that I definitely had daddy issues that I was acting out on and projecting on them because of my childhood trauma. That is one of the ways in which my relationship with my father really, really fucked me up. I have had a lot of failed relationships and I have been really fixated on relationships more than I should have been at the expense of other things in my life. But because of all of those failed relationships, I have learned so much about myself. I've learned a lot about my triggers. I've learned a lot about my behavioral patterns. I've learned a lot of things about generational trauma in my family. I've learned a lot of things about societal trauma when it comes to you know, those dynamics between men and women and, and relationships that have not been healthy, have never been healthy, and how it just keeps repeating generation after regener- after generation. And through all of that, I have been able to make a conscious effort to start changing those things. I started becoming way more self-aware. I started becoming way more aware of what I was attracted to that was not good for me. And I started being able to learn really valuable relationship skills and communication skills. My relationship that I have now with Calvin, is it ideal? Of course not. We both have trauma. We both have our own mental health stuff. It is not perfect. But I am way healthier in this relationship with him than I ever have been before. And I chose someone who, despite his flaws and his struggles, is invested in me as well. I'm not chasing some inaccessible man and trying to prove my worth to them. I feel worthy outside of my relationship with Calvin. I am not relying on him for my worth and I can communicate with him and he's learning with me and he is equally invested in this relationship and we're both working on it and we're both getting better. I did that. That's how far I have come. And it's really important to focus on those positives. Focus on the progress that you have made and how much you are still growing and the positive impacts that it's had on your life overall. Don't focus so much on the negative things that have happened or the bad choices that you've made. Focus on how things are getting better. Focus on how you are getting better and you're getting wiser and you're making better judgment calls. Yeah, that example that I used with with Calvin, that's a perfect example of our our next point, which is allowing yourself to be loved by both yourself and by other people. I am not reliant on him or anybody else in order to love myself, but I am also not pushing him away. I'm, I'm allowing him to love me. I allow my sister to love me now. I have friends that I allow to love me. Whereas before I didn't, I didn't think I was worthy of it. I didn't feel safe. It felt too vulnerable. It felt too intimate. I thought I would never really know what it felt like to love and be loved. That's part of why I pursued it so aggressively because I really wanted it, but I was also afraid of it. And that was part of the mistakes that I was making along the way. Once I realized what it was I was doing to myself, I could take a step back and say, what I actually want is to know love. And so I started working on loving myself more and allowing the people who care about me to show their love, allow myself to actually get closer to them. Trauma can really rob you of close, intimate relationships with people because it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel 
okay. You don't feel like you're deserving. It can feel very violative. It can feel very vulnerable. It can feel very exposing. Part of finding hope for the future is allowing yourself to love who you are and who you are becoming, and then allowing others to love you as well and feeling that love and feeling safe to express it in return. With that focusing on the future. And I mean, that's really what hope is about. There is a quote out there and I'm not sure who said it, but they said, all I want is the moon. I know in advance what will kill me. That is why I want the moon because I want to know what will make me live something to that effect. And I think that's very, I think it's good advice overall, but especially with trauma, shit happened. There's no going back. That's okay. We know what's back there. We don't know what's in the future. And we are the ones writing that future. We are the ones in control of that. And we have the ability to change that. Like I said, there is hope for the future. And that includes the future generation. So if you are a parent and you've been through trauma, especially if that trauma happened during your childhood, because you're aware of this, because you're making changes, because you're actively growing, you're taking steps to not just create hope for you in your life, you're taking steps to create hope for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren for the, all the next generations, even those of us that do not have kids, those of us that are making these active changes in ourselves that are growing and healing and piece by piece changing society, we are creating hope, not just for ourselves, but for the future generations to come, that things can be better, that this kind of events will not happen to them, that we can create a world that is safe and loving. I know trauma can go a long ways towards destroying how you feel about yourself and how you see yourself. There is also a lot of potential here to really be something more, to be something different and wonderful and unique. And it just takes opening up your eyes and reshifting that focus so that you can honestly see the amazing parts of you as well and not just the negatives to get that more balanced picture so that you can love yourself and see you as the glorious, wonderful being that you are. And I think for today, we will go ahead and wrap up on that somewhat cliched but very heartfelt note. Ivy, do you want to throw the audience our connecty bits, please, madam? Yes, I will do that. So you can find us at www.differentfunctional.com. We are on Facebook as Different Functional. We are on Instagram and TikTok as Different underscore Functional. You can send us an email at differentfunctional at gmail.com. We are on Patreon as Different Functional, if you could not have guessed. We would love it if you could show us some support, if you can contribute to Patreon, fantastic. If not, please help us get exposure. Like, subscribe, rate, review, do all of that stuff. Tell your friends about us. Tell us, tell your enemies about us. We don't care. Just tell people about us. Scream it from the rooftops. Anything we can get, we, we would love. Tell people that we exist and we're doing a thing. We would appreciate that. Well, I mean, if, if you are like us and you've gone through trauma and you're going to make conversations awkward anyways, they might as well be randomly awkward and you could just bring us up at any moment. So they're all like, oh, look at my son. He just graduated. And you could be like, that's awesome. Have you heard of the different functional podcast? I mean, it's going to be weird and awkward anyway. 
so you might just promote us <laughs> during it and get something out of yeah. it. Just, I, I don't know. It's just a just, thought. They say, show you their, their son who just graduated. Be like, did you fuck your son up? Did you give him any trauma? <laughs> There's this awesome podcast that helps people deal with their trauma that they've been through. Just, just saying, just in case you messed your kid up. <laughs> that make it real awkward that's i think that's the key make it awkward because the more awkward you make it the more memorable that conversation will be <laughs> maybe it'll that stick is in true. Their minds to actually check out the podcast make it weird make it awkward enough and the next generation will check out the podcast it'll be all like the retro podcast yeah my grandma told me about this weird people <laughs> anyways we will go ahead and wrap up today and I know we always close with every line, but very, very much today, if this applied to you at all, really take this idea to heart because it is so true. Different does not mean defective. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm-hmm.